I am, uh, I am of the opinion that, uh, that when it comes to church history, studying, studying church history is uh, a beneficial undertaking um, for lots of different reasons. I think, I think when we study the events of church history that, uh, that there's benefit, we, when we do that, we, we open ourselves to learning from those events, learning the good from those events, learning the bad from those events. Um, but, but in addition to studying the events of church history, I think studying the, the learning about the people of, of church history is beneficial as well. Um, when we do that, I think we, we come to see these large figures, you know, back uh, in, in the faith, we see them as humans, just like you and me. We see that there's struggles that they have, struggles with doubt or suffering or temptation or sin just like you and I would have. Uh, we, we can recognize that the context in which they live greatly impacts their understanding of things. So, so case in point, uh, Martin Luther is one of the bigger figures of, of church history. He's, he's the, the famous German pastor and theologian who lived in the 1500s. He's credited with being the spark that lit the, the, uh, the Reformation. Um, in studying Martin Luther, the person, you, you, you sometimes see it written that he struggled with James's letter, which we've been studying these past few weeks and, and will continue this morning. Uh, it, it, it's sometimes written that, that he especially struggled with what James had to say about faith and works. And because of that, it might be tempting to think that, well, if Martin Luther is struggling with, a, with what James said, then maybe James's words don't really match up with the understanding of salvation by faith alone, which is one of the central tenets of the Reformation and, and heavily emphasized by Luther. But I want to read for you a quotation written by Luther that I came across recently. And this quotation is from the preface of his commentary on the book of Romans. And, and let's, let's see if his understanding of faith and works really is so opposed to that of James and what he presents to us in his letter. So Martin Luther wrote this. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is consistently doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. If you would have just read that to me, I would have thought James wrote it, <laughs> not Martin Luther, the way Luther is sometimes presented. But, but what Martin Luther so eloquently stated in his writing is the topic to, for today. As, we've, uh, as we continue our study of James chapter 2, we've now come to the really the central point of his letter. And you know, even before we get to this point in the letter, James has already spoken clearly about the importance of our actions. He's stated in chapter 1 that we ought to strive to be steadfast in trials, uh, finding joy in the maturing of our faith. 
He has stated that we ought to ask God for wisdom in trials. He stated we must not blame God for temptations. He stated we must be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Uh, in chapter 2, what we talked about last week, he stated that we must not show partiality. So he's made numerous statements about, about how followers of Jesus ought to be living. But that doesn't mean that he expected the recipients of his letter to, to just immediately accept his words, right? In fact, it seems that part of the reason James wrote his letter is because some people were being led to believe that, that what a person believed about Jesus was what really mattered. What was most needed was not clarity on how to live, but knowledge to properly understand God. It seems that some were being led to that. So, so when you consider the, the history and context of the Jewish believers to whom James wrote, it makes sense that he would focus on this topic and make his point so clearly. Think about the Jewish people. For so long, they held adherence to the Old Testament law as of utmost importance. But then once the new covenant was instituted by Jesus and through Jesus, some believers came to think that, well, the old law just needs to be then completely rejected, right? They, they, they came to equate the old covenant with works and the new covenant with uh, faith, with belief. And, and so what became of utmost importance wasn't what a person did, but what they believed. They thought that was the difference, moving from old to new covenant. So kind of, if you can picture, you know, taking that pendulum and swinging it from one way all the way to the other was maybe a temptation for the Jewish believers in James's time. And, and I think if we look at ourselves today, we can see why that might be a temptation for us today as well. We, we, we place a high value on right interpretation and understanding of the Bible, right? What's our church name? Eureka Bible Church. It wouldn't be there if we didn't value that highly. highly. So it's why our church has uh, programs like Sunday school and Bible studies, Kids Connection, Children's Church, Youth Group. And, you know, we, we wouldn't even think about removing the study of the Bible from its place in those programs, Right? And please hear me, that's not a bad thing. That, that is not a bad thing at all. We are blessed to live in a time when, when we have the, the written word of God that is so accessible to us, and we're right to examine it deeply. But we have to recognize that when elevating the study of God's word and the understanding of God's word, that there is a danger of diminishing the doing of God's word. We, we, can, we can become quick to part ways with someone because they believe differently than us about the nature of baptism, for example, and, and, and yet we might completely ignore the pride in their attitude. We, we can be more focused on belief than action at times. We, we might give more concern to whether someone believes in predestination or free will as opposed to whether they're stingy or gener generous in how they live. And again, Doctrine and understanding of the Bible is so important. I'm not saying we should take this and pull it down. Rather, it's, it's what James is saying is take the doing and bring it up, right? James makes sure to point out that, that what we believe is not elevated above what we do, but that it goes hand in hand with what we do. 
And so that's what James is, is speaking to again and again and again in his letter. So, so as we pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 2, it seems like James is maybe anticipating some pushback from the recipients of his letter. And so he asks two questions pertaining to faith and works. So look with me at, at verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, now before we go any farther, we, we've got to be crystal clear on the question James is seeking to answer this morning. Some would claim that James is arguing for a works-based salvation, a works-based righteousness. And to be honest, if you pull verses or parts of verses in this section especially out of context, it, you can make it sound that way. You could. But what question is James seeking to answer in verse 14? He's not, he's not talking about whether works can save a person. That that's not what James is, is addressing. He's asking whether faith without works can save a person. And those are, those are two very different questions. That's why we have to make sure we know which one he's asking. It's not, can work save a person? Can faith without works save a person? That's what he asks in verse 14. So that has to be the lens through which we read this passage today, in all of James's letter, for that matter. And if, if that's not our lens, then we are in danger of missing James's point and hearing him say things that he's not saying. So, so can faith without works save a person. That, that's the focus this morning. James begins his answer by stepping back from that specific question and, and really noting a general principle about the interplay between words and actions. So look with me at verse 15. He says, if, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So uh, we're into the 11 o'clock hour now. Might be about this time that our stomachs start to churn a little bit, right? We've already talked about church lunch that's coming after the service. So... Uh, might be a little hungry, right? And so I like to think of myself as a compassionate, caring individual. So I thought I would show you some kindness today by reading to you my grandma's recipe for honey cookies. <laughs> and these cookies are good. I mean, let me tell you, they are, I'm only reading the best for you right now, all right? I mean, I, I want to give you the best this morning. So let me read, start reading this recipe. So nine cups of flour, one and a half tablespoons of baking soda, one half teaspoon of cinnamon, two cups of honey, that's probably why they taste so good, two cups of honey, two cups of sugar, another good reason they taste so good. Now, as I'm reading through those ingredients, and I can't read all of it because I don't know if I'm allowed to give away the recipe, but, but as I'm reading that, I'm sure your stomachs are filled now, right? And you're quite content. I mean, I could preach for two hours and you wouldn't be hungry at all because I've just read this recipe, right? No, I mean, we know that. We, I mean, obviously, 
Sure, Aaron, you can say you're compassionate and kind, whatever you want, but if you're just going to read a recipe of cookies, that does nothing for me, right? And, and maybe I could read the recipe louder, I could read it faster, maybe I could get some pictures to put up on the screen to really show my kindness this morning. But again, that, that doesn't change the reality of the situation, that my words about my concern for your hunger are not matching up with my actions, I mean, we get that, right? It's totally clear. It makes perfect sense. You know, a person's words are only as good as their actions which accompany them. I don't think I need to belabor that point any further. So, so what James is saying in verse 17 is that faith without works is as useful as me reading to you my grandma's cookie recipe so that it might satisfy your hunger. Right? It's not useful. A, a person's faith is only as alive as the actions which accompany it. So we can't miss James's point here, but verse uh, 17 is the, the thesis statement of the whole letter. Faith without works is dead. It means a person can grow up in church attend Sunday school as a child, uh, participate on the quiz team, go off to go to Bible college and study there, maybe go on to get a master's and a doctorate in ministry or in the Bible. You can state that you have faith in Jesus, but if there's no action in life flowing from that stated faith, then James says we're deceived. Faith is dead. Not sick, not deficient, not small, but dead. Dead faith. I mean, James is kind of in our faces a little bit here, isn't he? I mean, man, he's going right at it. He's not pulling any punches. In fact, some might feel offended by the words that he says. But his statement is true. And, and, and he goes on to defend his statement. He makes a strong statement. He says, let me show you that this is true. And he gives two examples. He gives, well, he gives examples of dead faith. And he gives examples of alive faith. So... First, let's look at his example of faith without works. So this is verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, so kind of the hypothetical argument that, that James uh, quotes, I guess, in verse 18 is the view that some people are people of faith, some people are people of works. Yeah, in other words, some, some people are known to be Christians by what they believe, some people are known to be Christians by what they do. And, and implicit in, in, in this argument is the belief that a person could only have faith or could only have works and be a follower of Jesus, that, that only one or the other is needed. And to prove the falsehood of that argument, James points to demons and states that, well, they actually believe the same things you do, Jewish believers. It, talk about a statement. I mean, the Jewish Christians, and, and all Jews for that matter, have a special place in their heart for what is known as the Shema. And, and this is, it's a statement from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which all devout Jews would recite both morning and evening, every day. So let me read this for you. 
Deuteronomy 6, uh, starting in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So all good Jews would verbally proclaim twice daily that they believed in the one true God, not, not a pantheon of gods like all the other nations would have. The Shema is a theologically true statement, which is good to keep in one's mind and to recite with, with one's mouth consistently. To believe its words is to believe the truth about God. The only problem is that simply believing that God is one does not make a person someone that's a person of faith. And James says, case in point, demons. Demons are beings who've rebelled against God. Demons war against God and his people. Demons are destined for an eternity in the lake of fire, and demons believe in the existence and the reality of the one true God. See what James is saying here? I mean, no one is going to argue that a demon's faith in God is the same as a Christian's faith in God. We wouldn't make that argument. So what would the primary difference be in those two faiths? What's the action, right? It's the action that flows out of that belief that God is one. So a person who puts their faith in Jesus, repents of their sins, submits themselves to Jesus, follows his commands in their lives, shows that their faith is alive. A demon who refuses to acknowledge uh, their own errors, they oppose Jesus, they reject his commands, they're showing their faith, their belief to be dead. And as, as James says, you know, we, we do well to believe in the one true God, but even demons believe that. So we can't hang our hat on that. Simply believing in God or believing in Jesus saves us from nothing. But belief in Jesus, which is shown to be alive through what it does, through the works that we live out, that's an effective faith. That's an alive faith which is what James is talking about. And so after talking about dead faith and essentially saying that demons have a dead faith, he goes on and he gives us two Old Testament examples about a live faith. And the first one is, is none other than Abraham himself. So picking it up again in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we're going to go to Genesis and, and look at what James is saying uh, shortly, but we've got, to, we've got to note the two specific events in Abraham's life that James is highlighting. So the first is that James is pointing to the action of Abraham when, when he went to the very precipice of sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar. So James is highlighting that. 
And he's also noting a statement made about Abraham in which his belief was commended and treated as real. Okay, so those are the two things James is pointing out. So, so let's go look at them. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. Now, if you would go back to chapter 12, you'd see that that's where God first calls Abraham, calls Abraham to leave his country, his family, and, and just go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham did that. He left his country. He left his family. He went as God led him. When we get to chapter 15, we, we don't know how much time has elapsed between 12 and 15, but it, it was long enough that it, Abraham began to wonder about God's words. L look at, look at uh, what, how it starts, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And here's what James quotes. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in the midst of God reaffirming his promise to Abraham, Abraham chose to believe God, even though he was just as childless after God finished speaking as he was right before. It wasn't like God spoke and then Abraham miraculously had a child. He was still childless. It was still only a promise at that point. But Abraham believed what God was saying. Abraham had faith in what God was saying. But coming back to the matter at hand, as we're talking about James's letter, is Abraham's faith alive or dead? I mean, he said, he, we're told that he believed. Is it, is it an alive belief? Well, turn with me to Genesis 22. In between chapter 15 and 22, we do know how much time has passed. That's been 15 years. So 15 years since God has reaffirmed his promise to Abraham, brought him outside, said, look at the stars. If you can number them, you can number your descendants. So God now has a son named Isaac. The promise of God is coming to pass. And yet, chapter 22, God called Abraham to take his son Isaac to the mountains of Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice on the altar. And, and no doubt, with multiple questions in his head, Abraham obeyed God. He took Isaac, traveled to the mountain, built the altar, arranged the wood, tied up his son, laid him on the altar, grabbed the knife, raised the knife, and was fully intending to lower the knife into Isaac's body. And probably know how the story goes, right? It was at that moment that God intervened, right? He stopped Abraham and provided a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac, an incredible foreshadowing of, of the Messiah, of Jesus who would come. 
So even though there's this 15-year gap in between Abraham's intellectual faith in God and his physical display of obedience in chapter 22, his faith was shown to be alive and real through his actions. All of those action things that he did in chapter 22 was showing that his faith was alive. Now, now we got to remember, Abraham was declared righteous the moment he believed in chapter 15. It wasn't as though God waited 15 years and after the whole thing with Abraham and Isaac, now God says, okay, now, I, now your faith is real, it's credited. I mean, his faith in chapter 15 was credited as real and alive, and he was called righteous. I mean, the statement was made instantly. But God is privy to details we are not, right? I mean, we might look at that and say, well, I don't know if Abraham's faith is alive or not. And we have to wait 15 years to see it played out on the mountains of Moriah. God knows in an instant whether his faith is real and alive. I mean, he knew what would happen 15 years in the future and, and in every moment, other moment of Abraham's life as well. So, so when James, going back to James, when he says in chapter 2, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, that's what he means. He's drawing on the story of Abraham. He says in verse 22, Abraham's faith was completed or, or, or shown to be mature by his works. The scene in Genesis 22 is the proof for us that Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 was real, was alive. It's not like it became alive at some point or at chapter 22. It was already alive in verse 15. We just weren't quite sure until chapter 22. Uh, John Calvin summed it up this way. He, he says it like this. He says, people are justified or, or declared righteous before God. People are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Man, he said it so well. People are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. It's, it was Abraham's faith in God through which he was declared righteous, a faith which was alive, not dead, due to a lack of works that, were, that, that wouldn't have been in his life. So James points to Abraham he says, you see Abraham's faith and you see it lived out in his life. And then the other example that he gives of an alive and an active faith is Rahab. So let's, let's uh, finish chapter 2 of James. He says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. It might seem kind of shocking for James to choose a prostitute as his second example, but, but I don't think it is shocking when you, when you examine Rahab's faith. Now, uh, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. So before entering the promised land, Joshua sent two spies in to check things out. These two spies enter Jericho, and it comes to the attention of the king of Jericho that these spies are there. And it comes to his attention that they are at the house of Rahab. And so he sends messengers to Rahab's house and, and demanded that she hand these spies over to them. But Rahab hid the two spies 
and told the king's messengers, no, these guys have already left the city. They're outside the walls, go pursue them. And so the messengers leave to go pursue outside the city wall. And listen to what Rahab then says in Joshua chapter two, verse eight. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now what's interesting about Rahab's statement there is she recounts what has been heard about the God of Israelites in the city. And, and she keeps saying we and us. Like we've heard this. We understand this. The truth about God was known by many in the city of Jericho. You might even argue that Rahab is speaking for the city when she makes her statement of faith in verse 11. And yet it's not her statement of faith by itself, which is commended by James, but her faith which showed itself through her actions. So the rest of the city seemed to believe that God was mighty and that God was powerful and that God was God in heavens above and the earth beneath, but only Rahab's faith showed it to be alive through her actions of hiding these two spies and then sending them off safely. You know, James only gave two examples in his letter, but he could have given many, many, many more. And, and in fact, if you go back just a few pages in your Bible from James 2 to Hebrews 11, you find the passage that is sometimes referred to as uh, the hall of fame of faith, or just the hall of faith, it's sometimes called. In every example mentioned in Hebrews 11, the faith of the person is commended. And in every example in Hebrews 11, the faith of the person is shown by what they did. In every one, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Joseph gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, Rahab gave friendly welcome to the spies. You see the two working together? I mean, it's the hall of faith and yet their faith is shown to be alive and it's commended because they're living it out. I mean, James says in verse 26, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith and works go together like body and spirit or, or breath is another way to translate that Greek word. I mean, to remove the breath from the body is to make both of them useless, right? The two go together, breath and body. To remove works from faith is to make both useless in terms of salvation. 
That's what James is, is arguing here. That's what he's presenting to us. So, so can faith without works save a person? James emphatically and confidently says no. He says true saving faith is active in works. So as I was studying this chapter, uh, this, this passage, something jumped out at me. I was, I was thinking about application, you know, how, what does this mean for our lives today? And, and I asked the question, well, what, how does James want his readers to respond? He's, he's making this case before them. How does he want them to respond? And, and in order to answer that question, I, I, I was looking hard to find those command statements that James has already made so many times in his letter in the first chapter and a half. Uh, Count it all joy, be quick to hear, show no partiality for example, right? All these command statements. And do you know what I found in this passage? Not a one. There is not a single command that James gives in this passage. That's odd, isn't it? I mean, in a a section of, of his letter about the necessity of faith showing itself through works, it's like, man, that seems odd that James isn't commanding his readers, commanding us in some way. I, I, just, I, I found it odd. And then it started to make sense to me. If, if a person has a faith that is dead, a command to do works, to do good deeds, is pointless. I mean, performing good deeds won't bring that faith to life. That is works righteousness. That is working for salvation. To say, well, if I just do what I need to do, then my faith will be alive. That would be, that would be seeking to earn our salvation through our own efforts. That's seeking to bring life to ourselves. And, and further, James is writing to Jewish believers who were scattered from Jerusalem because of their faith in Jesus. If their faith was dead, I doubt they would have been persecuted and scattered. I think the fact that they were driven out of Jerusalem because of their faith and how they were living shows that their faith was alive. So James isn't writing to people of a dead faith. He's writing to people of an alive faith. Now, maybe their faith is, is, is a little weak or immature, but it's alive. It's not dead. James is writing to encourage people with an alive faith keep putting one foot in front of the other in in their pursuit of Jesus, in in their living out their faith. I mean, that's what people with an alive faith do, right? I mean, that's what James is saying here. Their faith shows itself, not just through words, but but through actions, even in the midst of difficulty. Think about Abraham. He followed God's leading. He held fast to God's words, even when they seemed difficult or illogical, when you think about offering Isaac on the altar. Rahab, I mean, she sought to honor God even when the surrounding city and culture opposed God. So I think think we can find encouragement in James's words as well. Our living faith in Jesus will show itself through our actions. The most natural thing that we can do as people within a live faith is to live out that faith daily. Now, we're not going to do it flawlessly. We know that. Even when you think about Abraham, in between uh, chapter 15 and 22 is chapter 16. 
Genesis 16 is the story about Abraham and Hagar, the servant girl that Abraham used in an attempt to hurry along God's promise. Seems like Abraham got a little antsy, tried to take matters into his own hands, his trust in God maybe sputtered a bit. But eventually Abraham's faith showed itself. It showed itself once again. I mean, faith apart from works is dead, as James says. But praise God, we are people of an alive faith. So we can be encouraged and we can walk daily in that. It's not about making our faith come alive. It's about working out our salvation by faith alone, by striving to keep in step with the Holy Spirit each day as we live. Now, I, you know, if, if you hear James's words today and, and have come to see that, that your own faith is a dead faith, there's hope. There is hope there. The, the hope doesn't come through pursuing good deeds. It's not doing the right things to make faith come alive. The hope comes through crying out to the one who brings the dead to life. Right? That's the difference. God can give a living faith, a faith that will show itself through works. And so if, if you would say, man, I think I'm in that spot that my faith is dead. If you, if you desire that living faith, simply come to Jesus in humility and ask him to do what only he can do bringing you to life, bringing your faith to life. I mean, as, as, uh, as James already said in chapter 1, God's the giver of every good gift. He's the giver of every good gift, and one of those good gifts is a living faith, an active faith. So, so as James says again and again, faith without works is dead. A living faith, showing itself through works, is a wonderful blessing from God given to each one of his people. And so we can praise God for it. We should praise God for that and then strive to live that out, to walk daily with him, step by step, day by day, following the Holy Spirit as he guides us each and every day. Let's stand together. We need, to, we need to praise God for this faith that he generously gives to us. And so let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we, we are blessed to be your people. We are blessed to, to have been awakened to an alive faith, to be brought from death to life, to participate in your resurrection. There's so many ways that the New Testament talks about it. God, at one time we were all of dead faith. But so many in here have been blessed to be resurrected and brought to life and given that living faith, and we're so thankful for that. We recognize that it's only in you, and it's only through you, and it's only by your grace that we experience that. And God, if there's any that haven't yet experienced that this morning, I pray that you'd be working in their hearts, that you'd be drawing them to yourself, and that they would humbly come to you, that they would receive the good gift that you have for them. God, would you, would you empower us and guide us and sustain us 
We want to be people that walk in this living faith, that show it day after day, that leaves no doubt, not to prove anything to you, but to proclaim to the world that you are a God who resurrects. God, would you give us opportunities to do that? And would you give us the discernment and the strength to live it out, to put it on full display for all to see? We give you the glory this morning, Father. We give you the praise that you give us in a live faith. We pray this in your name. Amen.